0: Today's scripture reading comes from select passages from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent his messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan as surely as the Lord lives the man who did this deserves to die he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity then Nathan said to David you are the man verse 13 then David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord Nathan replied the Lord has taken away your sin you are not going to die this is the word of the Lord
1: morning uh Congratulations. Uh, Labor Day weekend is always often one of the most poorly attended worship services throughout the country, and so you made it. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Um, Please take the opportunity to greet one another. I know that there are a lot of visitors and newcomers. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, Fortunately, I'm a bit under the weather, so you're going to have to bear with me a little bit this morning. Now, uh, talk a little bit about the series. For the last several months, We've been looking at passages in scripture, and these passages are passages that many of us, if you've ever been to the church, you've heard at some point in your life. And what we wanted to do was explore what's the meaning, what's the deep central themes of these passages that help us to understand God's heart. What is, who is God? Who is Jesus? And who is God? What does he want of us? Now, we spent quite a bit of time on David, King David. This is God's chosen, his anointed king. He was a writer. He was a poet. He was a singer. He was a warrior. He was a shepherd. He was a king. But this passage, and we've talked a lot about David. We've talked about his victories. We've talked about his humility. This passage, we're going to look at the darkest time in David's life, where David's life His error, his sin, it just completely blows him up. And what does that tell you? Well, it's going to tell you three things. One, the power of sin. Two, the power of friends. And lastly, the power of grace. The power of sin, the power of friendship, the power of grace. First, we're going to look at the power of sin. I'm going to walk you through the background here. Years prior, David became God's chosen king over God's people, Israel. Israel. The surrounding kings, they hoarded wealth. God had a particular plan for his kings, and whereas these surrounding kings, they hoarded their wealth, they ruled very selfishly, they were very cruel, they were self-preserving, David was a modest king. David was a just king. God says that David is a man after his own heart. But over time, David begins to act like the other kings around him. The passage, if you start the passage uh, where we began to read, in the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army. And we find out that David remained in Jerusalem. At a time when kings go off to war, David remains in Jerusalem. What's happening here? David's becoming self-preserving. David becoming self-absorbed. David is becoming self-centered. He's becoming lonely. That spiritual decay that often leads to... We look at sin and we look at these acts of sin. The spiritual decay happens long before that. The distance between you and the Father happens and begins long before that. Verses 2 and 3, David begins to lust after. He falls for Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the beautiful wife of Uriah the Hittite. You want to know who Uriah was? Uh, A couple weeks ago, we talked about David as a fugitive. David in the wilderness. David, uh, he, was, he was hunted. A couple weeks ago, we talked about it in a different context, but David was familiar with the cave life. He was familiar with the wilderness. He was oftentimes hunted. There were a group of friends, a band of brothers, that voluntarily came around him, about 400 men. They were known as, as mighty men. And they risked their lives for their king. They risked their lives to save David. And when David became king... These men began to serve in his palace. They were the ones who he trusted. They were his brothers. They were like families. So he elevated them to the palace. He elevated them to his cabinet, into his military. One of those men was Uriah the Hittite. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 23, which was a recounting of something that happened prior to, uh, really after he became king, and it mentions Uriah. You see the, the census of the, four, the mighty men. One of them was Uriah the Hittite. The man to whom David owes his life. And David, now he's king. He's got everything. What do you get a king? He's got everything. He owns everything. In verse 4, he covets the wife of one of his best friends. Commits adultery with that woman. Gets her pregnant. And so in verses 5 to 13, we see this journey and David becomes more and more manipulative. David begins to abuse his power to get what he wants. In verses 14 to 21, he has Uriah killed. He has his friend killed and he lies. He's covering up all these things. because He's covering up the pregnancy. He's covering up the relationship. He's covering up what he's doing to Uriah, the motives behind it. Over half of the Ten Commandments are broken from the cascade of one awful look at a woman, one awful act of sin. Uriah is dead, his wife is disgraced, and she knows what's happening. She knows what happened. Certainly she knows. And Joab, who is the commander of, of David's army, he's disillusioned in the palace because he knows. You can only imagine how he feels as David... When he hears the news of these men who had fallen, including Uriah, what does he say? Verses 18 to 25, he says, basically what he's saying is, that's what happens, right? That's what happens in battle, right? Good men fall, right? Good men die, right? What's happening here? David is beginning to lose the public trust that helped to build the foundations of his kingdom. One of the greatest figures in all of ancient literature, in all of ancient history, in all the Bible... And yet his life completely explodes. How does it happen? This is David. How does it happen? David wrote the Psalms, many of the Psalms. Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. He wrote that. He meant it when he wrote it. And yet he did this. Was he lying then? He did this this faithful warrior, this king, this writer, this singer, this poet, this shepherd, this man after God's own heart. What does that teach us? It teaches us a lot. And here's what it teaches us, basically. That's the power of sin. Sin begins with a seed. And if you think about the seeds of the most terrible atrocities in history, the worst possible things in history, Worst possible deeds, that lives in every human heart. In every human heart. If you look at the ancient debates that took place between theologians of different spectrums, many people, there's this one encounter, one of the theologians really kind of led to the birth of the liberal church. He criticized St. Augustine. St. Augustine was a heathen. St. Augustine was a priest and yet a licentious priest. And when he came to faith in Christ, when he discovered the gospel, one of his prayers was, Lord, grant me the strength. Grant me the sustenance to do your will. And his counterpart criticized him and said, why would God give you something to do that you can't accomplish on your own? What they were really debating was, are you born with sin or do you acquire sin? The Bible here, and all through the Bible, this is just one of the texts, and it's not even the most poignant test, but what we see here throughout the Bible is that sin begins as a seed, and it lives in every human heart. And if you nurture it, if you culture it, if you develop it, if you leave it untouched, and it just gets watered over time, it can grow into an oak tree of sin. That's what happens. The most terrible atrocities, even the best people, kings and scholars and poets and writers, you see it all in David, singers and authors, men who are lawful, men who are just, judges and prophets, David was all of them. And yet that tells us every one of those people, it's not a matter of education, it's not a matter of wealth, it's not a matter of, of upbringing or pedigree. The seeds of sin are born in everyone, even people who are converted by God, we have indwelling sin even the best people. David was all of those people. When you look at today's atrocities, it's easy to say, wow, what a terrible thing that twisted this person. In other words, what we're saying is, I could never be capable of doing those kind of things. Listen, Abraham, great, the father Abraham, three of the world's largest religions are founded on this one man. Abraham, he goes to Egypt, and uh, he's afraid of the pharaoh in Egypt because the pharaoh falls in love with his wife. And he knows that the pharaoh wants what the Pharaoh wants, the Pharaoh gets, which means Abraham's life is over. And so what does he do? Does he protect her? No. He puts her life in jeopardy. He puts her life in jeopardy by calling her his sister and lets the Pharaoh take her. Jacob, another great figure in the Old Testament, constantly scheming and lying and stealing and cheating and fighting. He takes on many, many wives, right? Peter in the New Testament, at the threat of his life, Seeing that Jesus is arrested, seeing what could happen to him, what does he do? He curses Jesus. He denies Jesus three times. This is his friend, his best friend, his king, the one he swears to protect, the one where he says, I am different like all the other followers in your life. I will protect you. Curses him publicly, denies him publicly. Do you think you're better than any of them? Can you really look at this passage and say, I could never do that. I could never conceive that. The minute that you say that, what you're really doing is you're going down a slippery slope because you're taking an enormous step towards actually doing it. To think that you do not have the capacity for that is to take an enormous step towards doing it because we're often blind to our own blindness. It's not the fact that we're just blind. We're blind to our own blindness, you see. The worst thing you could do is to believe then that you're incapable of doing anything. It makes you more capable. And the reason why we do it is that the seeds of these sins are awful. These awful things in our lives, they're in us already. What's a seed? A seed is very small. Have you ever been to California, the redwoods? Large, tall structures, right? These redwoods, endangered actually. A million redwood seeds weigh only eight pounds a million redwood seeds, and each redwood produces 6 to 8 million seeds a year, which means that we have in probably one tree enough seeds to cover the entire world over the course of its lifetime. Think about this. If you look at your life, you see the self-pity, you see the resentment, you see envy, you see jealousy. You see, I mean, we cover over all these things, much like David. We're very manipulative because we don't want people to see the resentment and the envy and the anger and the deep-seated, the deep-rooted pride, the hurt, the self-centeredness. When those seeds find the right soil, and all it takes is the right person to be willing to hear you. All it takes is the right person to be able to nurture you and culture it and draw it out of you and and entices you. And now you know there's a cycle of sin. Now that engine begins to turn, Right? When those seeds find the right soil, when it's watered properly, it can destroy the world. It can destroy the world, and yet we allow it. We tolerate it. Why? Because deep inside, we don't really believe that we're capable of it. We think we can be immune to it. That person's hurting. I'll hear her out. It's also enticing to hear. And we don't realize that's poisoning our souls. It's corrupting our souls. There's a reason why the Bible speaks against gossip. There's a reason why in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it speaks against betrayal and gossip and talking against other people. It's not just because it hurts the other person. It kills you. It kills you. Those seeds, those poisons that we ingest, what it does is if it, it's allowing your sin to find the right soil. Deep inside, we don't really believe we're capable of that. We're self deceived And if you want to know why, think about this. Even, even the people who think, listen, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe I'm saved by grace. My worth is founded on Jesus' love for me. But here's how the heart operates. Here's how we operate. Your self-image, moment to moment, even though you can confess that, even though you profess that, your self-image, moment to moment, is based on being greater than other people. Every day, every moment, we're tempted. Everybody's like that. When you think that way, when, you're, when you think that your self-image is based on, I'm better than the next person, you're going to screen out the reality of what those seeds are capable of. The heart of racism, the heart of bigotry, the heart of Nazism, for that matter, the heart of any serial killer, for that matter, is founded on the premise, very simple premise of, I could do that better. I'm better. I'm not capable of their evils. You see that? And when those seeds begin to sprout, you're capable of the worst deeds possible. That's really the first point. That, you know, and one application we can learn from this, John Owen, he's a British uh, Puritan theologian, in the 17th century, he said this very simply, be killing sin or it be killing you. <laughs> very simple. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Look for those seeds. If, you're, if you have any bit of humility in your life, if you have any ounce of courage in your life, you would desperately want to inspect your soul for the cancers, for the tumors that are growing as a seed, as a cell, that if they begin to proliferate, will take over your whole soul. It's a lot easier to squash a seed than it is to uproot a tree. Some people say, Ah, oh, but it's already so hard. You know why you're saying that? It's because the seed of sin is already sprouting. That's why. Squash it now. Uproot it now while you're still able, while your life have not blown up, deal with it now. Stop putting up with the anger. Stop putting up with the gossip. Stop putting up with the pride. Stop putting up with the the back talk. Stop putting up with the the, the deceit. Stop putting up with the jealousy and the envy and the the self-absorption about your looks, your need for intimacy. Don't let that tree grow. Don't let that cancer grow. College students, welcome to Metro Presbyterian Church. (laughs) Uh, we need to talk about sin, right? Uh, to the power of friends, verse 27. Um, verse 27 says The thing that David had done, oh, everything's all done, neatly wrapped up. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is my wife. Never mind the fact that people can count the months when she has a child. They know, right? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God sees. God sees God knows you take a look at whom God sends to David that's the second point, the power of friends God sends Nathan and Nathan doesn't come at David, he's wiser than that instead uh, he comes and he says I want to talk to you about a case because you're a judge, back then in the ancient times there's, there was no executive branch and judicial branch, they were not separated that's a very recent convention maybe in the last maybe 300 years the king was the judge, the king was the court, the king was the jury, and his job was to sit in court. People were going to come, they're going to bring cases to him, and he would rule, that's what would happen. And what was the case? In verses tw- 1 to 7 of chapter 12, this rich man had many flocks, he had many herds, and it was a poor man with only one little lamb. And the lamb was like a member of his family, this poor man. He had, it's all he had, he, it slept in his arms at night. And the rich man receives this traveler, and, you know, back then, hospitality was really one of the chief virtues of the ancient culture. And so this rich man was socially obligated to show this traveler a hospitality. But he, wanted, he didn't want to do it at the cost of his own uh, sheep. So what does he do? He takes the poor man's sheep. And he either steals it or he finds some way to acquire the sheep. We don't know how he got it, but he gets it basically by the use of his own power, because there's an emphasis that he's a rich man, he's got power, and so he uses his power, he kills the lamb, he feeds it to the traveler. And Nathan says, what do we do about this, David? What do we do, right? And David says two things. First, he says the rich man must pay four times over because of this. That is perfectly fitting. Perfectly fitting because it's part of Mosaic law. The Mosaic law, there's two types of law. There is a Ten Commandments type of law, which is uh, what we call the apodictic law. That law is, ca- you know, there's casualty. There's usually capital punishment. Um, but then there's what you call the casuistic law, case law. And, and based on those laws, based on that law set, you are to base, then all the cases you hear, it fits into some form of the law that you're given. That's why there's a lot of laws in, in Exodus and Leviticus, and it's a lot of times hard to decipher or understand, but that's why it's there. And so basically what he says is that man should pay four times over. He's basing it on biblical law, the Mosaic law, right? But then, uh, you know, if you're robbed or defrauded or you call called, you have to pay four times the amount. That's very just. But the other thing he says is very interesting. In fact, it's way more interesting because the text reads that David burned with anger against this man. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. The man who did this deserves to die. Now, there's nothing in Mosaic law that says that stealing somebody else's sheep deserves capital punishment. David is absolutely over the top. He's burning with anger. He's furious. On one hand, you look at how lawful David is. Without a blink, four times. He knows the law. He loves the law. He broke the law. And when you're guilty... There's a self-righteousness that comes with that seed of sin. There's a self-righteousness that's born because the moment that we are born in sin, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the first several chapters in the first book of the Bible right after creation in Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, did they confess right away? The first thing they did was they said, No, she did it. She gave it to me. In fact, you put her there and she gave it to me. The first thing we do, the first thing they did when they when they took of the fruit was what? They covered themselves. The moment that seed begins to sprout, in fact, we're born with a deep-rooted shame. There's always this inherent, innate need to cover over who we are. Cover over, there's just shame. Shame of being naked. Shame of being, and then that nakedness, even though you're wearing clothes. That's why we need to have the best clothes. Because if somebody dresses better or has more or is living better, has a better job, a better salary, a better looking spouse, better looking children, good children, better children, better behaved, smarter, more intelligent, more capable, your husband or your wife may be more capable, what happens is we need to cover over that. You know how we do it? By building. That's what we do. It's a way of covering over our shame. It's a way of covering over our nakedness, even though you may be fully, fully covered in Christ. It, this is not just for non-Christians. Friends, if we do this, these seeds of sin, if, they continue to, if you continue to nurture them, the indwelling sin, even as believers, your life can explode. Your life can explode. And so David, he's just completely over the top. Really what he's saying is, what, what's going on here? God is using David's conscience to wake him up his conscience is stirring because he hears a story and he doesn't even realize it's about him but it's so unjust and it's over the top unjust because his conscience is stirring he's already been primed and so what does he say he says his own guilt is grabbing him he says who is this man does he not know justice? Does he not know where he's living? Does he not know who his king is? And Nathan says, you are that man. Remember, you are that man. That was not the introduction. <laughs> that was the conclusion. He didn't charge in. Poof! You are that man. That's not what he did, right? We like to do that. We're oftentimes very dramatic. And, and, and we're, you know we're all good friends. We all have good friends. And we're also terrible friends to our good friends, right? Because we do that. We like to do that. Ah, because you know. You're the only one may know that may know. In fact, people say you're the only one who can speak to him. So what do you do? You walk in, right? We do that. Why didn't he just bust through the palace to do that? There's several reasons. One, he could be killed. <laughs> David's the king, right? He could be executed for, what he, for the way he speaks to his king, right? Um, so he has to be careful. He's, but he's really navigating David's temperament. Look at the love of Nathan. His goal is not to catch David. Listen, God already knows. God sent Nathan. God already sees, and Nathan knows. Why is he going then? He wants to save his friend. He wants to save his friend from the corrosion and the corruption. And so he's navigating David's temperament, very, very careful. He gets into David's story by telling a story. Yeah, because he can be executed for what he says, but number two, he doesn't want to hurt David. His goal is not to hurt David. His goal is to rescue him. His goal is to save him. Now, friends, I know that there are some friends that we have, they don't listen, and so you kind of have to grab them, and you kind of have to shake them up a little bit, but that can't be the case for everybody, right, who's blind. They just need your friendship, right? and uh, Nathan's a prophet. He's reflecting the grace of God. This is how gracious God is in our lives. When there's even the slightest bit of hope for change, when there's a slightest bit of hope for repentance, for conviction, God's going to go for the conviction. God's going to go for the conversion. God's going to go for the repentance. You know, there's a chapter in Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, and you have uh, 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left, God says, and they are ruthless and they're cruel, and God sends Jonah, and Jonah can't stand these people. Jonah doesn't want to preach to these people, and God speaks to Jonah and says, why are you so angry? You know, you care more about this tree that's growing behind you than I... This city has 120,000 people that don't know their right from their left. Wouldn't I care for them? That's his compassion. Even at the hint of repentance... Because we know later on that that city, they're not fully repentant. But even at the hint of repentance, God relents from his anger. That's how gracious God is. He's always going to go for the conviction. He's always going to go for the conversion. God speaks to you. He's not going to condemn you. Sometimes you feel condemnation, right? That may be the human sin of the people talking to you. But that's not how God speaks to you. That's not what God wants from you. Look at the gentleness of God because it's easy to condemn in such a way that we raise the defense mechanisms so high and there's no way they're going to repent. On one hand, uh, it glorifies God for you to tell the truth to another person about their sinfulness. You know what will glorify God more? If they repent. It will glorify God more when they do. And I honor people here who are so much more gracious than me who know how to lead people to repentance. It's what we can learn from that. That's what Nathan's going for. What a great friend. What a gracious friend. He's reflecting the character and the nature of God. Uh, David charges, this man must die and he's guilty. Nathan knows, but he's very gentle. He comes into the palace and he says, I've got a case for you. Let's talk. Nathan knows that if he condemns the person, it's going to make it almost impossible for that person to come to repentance. And he understood navigating around the reality, right, that nobody just wakes up from adultery. Nobody just wakes up from their lies. Nobody just wakes up from their murders, not without spinning a web of self-justification and rationalization, ton of defense mechanisms, self-deception. Nathan's got to navigate around all that. David is a perfect example of what happens to us all the time. We do it all the time. I'm going to give you a couple examples. <clears throat> One, uh, there are people in power today. There are people who have wealth. There are people who are in power here in this room uh, who are wealthy, who sacrifice a lot, a lot to get to where they are. You study hard. You work hard. You have to go through tremendous selection processes at every level. And that doesn't matter if you're playing baseball or if you're heading up the corporate ladder. That's what it is. So you're going to give yourself. You're going to give of yourself. You have no life of your own, not for a long, long time. You're going to bear opposition. You're going to bear criticism, especially if you're a public figure. And so much of that criticism is false. And so much of it is wrong. And it's filled with people's personal agendas. So after a while, because you're suffering, and because you're giving, and because you're sacrificing, deep inside, there, there grows a seed of self-pity. There grows a seed of self-righteousness. Nobody knows what I'm putting up with. Nobody will ever understand what kind of sacrifices that I've made. Nobody will ever know. These people do not know how much I've given up for them. So when that opportunity comes, for a slight misstep under the table, a slight misstep under the veil, initially you reject it. say no I want to live a noble life I want to reject it I turn away from it maybe it's a bribe maybe it's a an offer a a collusion offer maybe there's sex involved maybe there's some perks involved you reject it but over the course of time that weather that storm just starts beating on you and you slowly start to give in because you realize everybody around you is doing it you say oh you do that too and I I see you as a noble man and and there are rationalizations there and there's self-justifications there and you say that starts to make sense So what do you do? You start to give in. I deserve this. This is what we all do. This is what's supposed to be done. For all that I've given up, I deserve this. You justify. You see that? That's the self-deceit now sprouting in you. That's the self-righteousness sprouting in you. And after a while, you spend time covering it up. At first, you don't feel like a liar. You don't feel like a cheater. You you develop this delusional field of self-pity around you that's one example Uh, moms and dads you guys give you guys sacrifice husbands and wives you give you sacrifice a lot you pour into your kids you pour into each other you want to make this thing work this thing called family you want to make it work and in a way you prioritize your family above all things your health your work your relationships your spiritual maturity You organize your life and your priorities. You schedule your life around your your children, your family. You're never going to be thanked for it, not for a long, long time. You're hardly honored for it, not even by your spouse oftentimes. So when that temptation comes to do something for you versus reaching out to somebody else who may be in need, which one are you going to choose more likely? You're going to opt out. You're going to opt out. You're going to unsubscribe from your relationships. Didn't I earn this? Can't I just have one time in my life? Don't I deserve even the slightest bit of rest? After a while, after all, my pastor says you need to rest. My pastor says you need to experience Sabbath. It's for your good. I'm called to be a parent. Right now, I'm called to family. Right now, I'm called to rest. I'm obeying God. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like David. It looks like David. It sounds like King Saul. None of that's good. None of that's good. Another example, today's generation, uh, sociologists call a lot of people in the younger culture today, the younger generation, there's this concept called apocalyptic dating. The world's going to come to an end. We all kind of have this very smug look at the world, and uh, life has no meaning because we're all just chemicals that have really collided to become who we are randomly by chance. So what real meaning is there in life? So as a result, sex has no meaning. Your intimacy has no meaning. And as a result, there's just, you know, you just want the thrill. There's no commitment anymore in life. There's no commitment to church, institution. Uh, it's, you're just there for the thrill. Everything else is meaningless. So my body is worthless. My relationships are really, at the end of the day, there to serve me. Uh, we have no real human dignity in our lives. And so you're going to go for the thrill without responsibility. You're going to look for thrill without any commitment. And you want to live this conse- unconsequential, a, a life without consequence. Now, a lot of us say, well, you know, um, listen, I was abused, I was, uh, so my sexual purity was already tainted, so what's the point of keeping pure now? And I don't want to diminish that, because I know there are people who have been sexually abused. You know, and if that's your mentality, there's a deep healing that you need, because there's a deep seed there that's growing, and it's going to hurt you, it's going to break you. There are some other people who say, listen, I'm a good person. I give a lot of myself. So what's wrong with what I do with my own body? It's my body. It's my body, right? It feels good. I like intimacy at the moment. I don't really want commitment. I don't really want consequence. I don't want to have to give myself over. But at some point, you're either going to be plagued by a deeper desire for intimacy and relationship that what your sexual relationships don't give you because there is no commitment and that's going to make you feel worthless and trapped. Or you're going to be plagued by guilt and the worthlessness of your body and your soul because of the guilt, and so you're going to be trapped and feel worthless. So what do you do? You're going to cover over this. You're going to justify this. You're going to sacrifice even more. You're going to give even more because now you want this relationship. You need this relationship. It's killing our teens. It's killing our college students. It's a terrible way to graduate into young adult life. To not, have a, to not be able to maintain a healthy relationship with a member of the opposite gender. You know what you need? You need a Nathan in your life. Ooh, it's quiet in here. You need a Nathan in your life. God sends friends from whom you cannot escape. Someone who knows you and loves you, called by God, really. On one hand, not afraid to challenge you, They're called to you. They're committed to you. On the other hand, they know how to navigate you. They know your defense mechanisms. They know how to navigate your temperament and they act as a vehicle for God's grace, for the grace of God. Nathan comes at David. He tries to disarm David. He convicts David. He gets into his story with a story. He gets into a place where his shield is down, his guard is down. Then he speaks into it, and it's always going to feel like a courtroom at times. You're not going to get around that. It's always going to feel at times like a trial, right? There are questions. There are responses. There's tension, but there's love, and there's grace, and there's assurance. They're not just after truth. They know the truth. They want you to know the truth. You see. Most of us are not as careful as Nathan. I'm definitely not as careful as a Nathan. Most of us are not as receptive as David. We are not as receptive as David. But the point is, we need to be Nathans, and we need Nathans. You have friends, you have flaws. You have flaws, you have friends who have flaws, who have deficiencies that are killing them. They're killing them, because if they continue on in this journey and that thing explodes, life will devastate them. And you see that down the pike. And most of our friends are not telling them these things because they're too afraid or they're too detached. And, and they don't want to lose their friendship or they don't want to lose the acquaintance relationship they have. Be a Nathan like Nathan. There is a way of telling people the truth in such a way that doesn't honor truth by itself. It turns truth into something that's not attractive, right? And as a result, it's something that's almost offensive to them. Be a Nathan, one who honors truth and yet honors the love of God, honors your relationship Be a Nathan. Your friends need that. They need that love. They need the humility. They need the courage, a humility, a courage, a love that they may not have at that time that begets, it births them into wisdom and grace. Now, you also need Nathans for yourself. Everybody needs Nathans. Hebrews chapter 10 says, spur one another into love and good deeds. That word, spur one another, is almost uh, synonymous with the Holy Spiriting one another. You are not the Holy Spirit in another person's life but the Holy Spirit, God has called you to walk alongside, uh, and that word spurring one another really means to grab them, come alongside them, and, and beat them almost. That's really the connotation to some degree. Push them, pull them, argue with them. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13, exhort one another daily. To exhort means to actually confront one another daily. Confront one another daily about what? the way in which you are missing what your sins are. Why? Because one of the biggest flaws, the biggest flaws that are killing you right now, the reason why they're the biggest is because you can't see them. You won't see them until it's too late. Most of the biggest flaws in our lives we can't see. The Bible always teaches that the things that are destroying us most are usually the things that we see the least. It's like a tumor. You usually can't see these things that are killing us. You by yourself are not enough to detect yourself. You need a Nathan to come alongside you. You need to tell them, listen, I can't tell what I'm doing. I can't tell if I'm doing this right or wrong. I can't tell if I'm living right or wrong. I can't tell when these sins will manifest themselves. I'm giving you a warrant for my arrest. I'm giving you the green light to catch me. I have friends, some of whom I've been walking with for decades, who stand by me, who are gentler than I deserve, who know me, and who know how to speak into me. I have a wife and family who are not afraid to speak into me. I have a team of wonderful brothers as pastors around me, both of them, wonderful pastors who pastor me, who stand with me, by me, and also speak into me. I have close pastoral friends. I I I can mention one. Doug Logan, who is out in Camden. He's one of my closest friends. Never afraid to tell me. And if you ever meet Doug, he, he visits once in a while. He never afraid to tell me like it is. Loves me, hugs me, spurs me on, exhorts me. What about you? David had Nathan. Who do you have? Are you giving them a warrant for your arrest? If you're not, Lo and behold, the seed has sprouted. Last point, I'm going to go quick. It's, it's an important point. You know me by now, right? You know we can't leave like this, right? A lot of times we just kind of let's pray. We can't do that, right? Assurance of pardon, you know, the power of grace. Chapter 12, verse 13. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. That's weird, right? Because he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Joab. He sinned against his palace. He sinned against his army. He put his army, a lot of, it wasn't just Uriah that died. It said many men had fallen. He had put many people in harm's way to cover over his own sin. He had betrayed his country. This is the king, a judge, a prophet, a priest. This is David. He had betrayed his entire country. And yet he says, I've sinned against the Lord. You know why? David, in Psalm chapter uh, 51 Uh, verse 4. You read it in your uh, prayer of confession today corporately. That was the prayer that David had written immediately after he had confessed his sin and in the midst of what happened with Bathsheba. And it says in verse 4, against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that's really odd, right? Because David had sinned against many people and he had sinned in front of many people's sights. So how could he say that? And notice he say, against you, you. You see the doublet there, the you, you? That's, and any time you see that in the Hebrew, there's emotional content. David is crying. David is emotional. David is just broken. And he's saying, against you, you only have I sinned. How can he say that? It's because the Psalm 51 is a song. It's not a discourse. It is not a doctrinal paper on sin. And when he's responding to Nathan, he's not sitting there and writing a discourse on sin. He knows the reason why he needed Bathsheba's embrace is because he had left the embrace of the Father first. I needed this, and that's why I went there. I've forsaken the richness of Christ, the richness of God, and so I sought richness elsewhere. I've forsaken the security I have with the Father, and so I sought self-preservation elsewhere. I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. What? It's not just that David committed adultery and murder. In fact, to kill Uriah, you have to, we just said this, we have to kill a number of people around. Joab had to send a group of men into battle, not just Uriah. David endangered the lives of many people to save himself. David did this. Think about Uriah dying in battle for his friend because of his wife, betrayed on many levels by his own army, by his king, by his wife. He had the honor, he had the love, he had the courage. I'm going to say it another way. Uriah lived the life that David should have lived, and Uriah died the death that David should have died. He paid the price. Nathan says, because of that, the Lord has taken away your sins. You're not going to die. How could God do that? David is in this courtroom with Nathan. Nathan is gracious, but David's really still on trial. In John chapter 19, you see Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. Now, I want to set the stage here. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, you have David who is a king who should be a good judge, a just judge, but he's corrupt and he's on trial. He should be condemned, but he's set free. Uriah paid the price. In John chapter 19, Jesus Christ, the king who is judge, perfect and holy on trial, he should be free because he was innocent and yet he was condemned and he died. He is the greater Uriah. He lived a life that we should live and he died the death that we should die. He paid the price for who? For you, for me, for us. But for Jesus in Pilate's courtroom, No one comes in to make things right. No judge comes in to make things right. No prophet comes in to make things right. No one comes, points to the Pharisees in the courtroom, points to the men in Pilate's courtroom and says, you are the men. No one says that. On the cross, nobody shows up. In fact, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God. There you see that emotional doublet again. He's wailing, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? You have left me for dead. He was alone. He was alone so that we would never be alone. He was forsaken so that we would be forgiven. He was innocent and yet charged and forsaken so that we could be declared innocent, forgiven. The judge of all the earth did nothing wrong and yet he dies condemned. He was tried, accused, innocent, charged, forsaken. Why? So that we, when we repent, we can receive the forgiveness. When your life blows up, and David's life, he blows up, you never see from that point on, David, at least it's not recorded, David abusing his power ever again like that. Repentance. He remains king. In fact, Psalm 51, if you read the latter half of Psalm 51, it is a prayer of praise and thanksgiving as God will restore, it's faith that God will restore everything in his life. And there are some damages, there are consequences to David's sin. But Jesus Christ was condemned for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, united with him, in union with him, we would become the righteousness of God. You would be declared righteous in him, forgiven in him never forsaken in him, sheltered in him, invited and embraced in him. Jesus is saying, I have earned forgiveness with what I've done. I have been condemned in your place. Your repentance then, what's the purpose of repentance then if Jesus did it all? Your repentance accesses that. You experience it through repentance. The reconciliation between you and the Father, you access that. Do you get that? You appropriate it. Do you get that? When you look at the cross, you see Jesus' love. You see his suffering for you, dying innocently for you. It will not make you feel guilty. There will be guilt. There will be condemnation, a sense of that. But Jesus didn't come to make you guilty. Jesus didn't come to make you feel condemned. Jesus came to remove the guilt and the condemnation. Altogether, once and for all, that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of grace. The grace of God, only the grace of God, sheer grace to forgive you, to pardon you. It's also the power for you to repent, to turn. Before you come to Jesus, you say, how come I can't change? New Year's resolutions seem to never work. Is it just me? Why can't I change? Because there's no indwelling spirit in your life to turn you from your sin. You cannot, you will not have the power to turn from sin on your own. It is the power, the sheer grace and the power of Jesus Christ. His blood shed for you, the spirit of God living in you that empowers you to do so. That's why we need Nathans. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, through repentance, by grace alone, by faith alone, you have the power to do it. Access that power. It'll bring you back into the heart of God. That's number one, repentance. Number two, some application, right? Number two, it's going to power you to be a Nathan. You will have the humility to be a Nathan. You will see the dire urgency to be a Nathan. You will have the power to be a Nathan. You will have the courage and the humility to submit to real Nathans in your life. Not just good friends in your life who are just telling you what's what. The real Nathans in your life lastly, it doesn't matter what you've done. You know that? There are people here struggling with guilt. And I don't want to minimize it. Guilt over things you probably didn't even do. Maybe it wasn't even your fault. Maybe it was done to you. But there's guilt. But there are a lot of us here we have messed up. Our lives may have blown up even. Some of you have done really horrible things. This, if a life like David's can blow up, anybody's life can blow up. And if a life like David's can be healed, anybody's life can be healed because God's grace is even more abundant than that. So friends, I'm going to close here. Will you turn to Christ? He was a greater king than David ever could be. He was a greater warrior than David ever could be. He was a more loving, more humble, more courageous person than Uriah could ever be, more a faithful lover and shepherd than David ever could be. He was a true king, a just king. He is a righteous king, and yet he placed himself on trial and was punished to death for you so that you would have the power of forgiveness and the power of repentance and so that you could be healed. That means it does not matter where you've been, what you've done. That grace is abundant for you. Let's pray.